to be seated. I also invite you this morning to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that we have gathered together in this space. As we journey through the wilderness to that blessed Easter morning together, let us draw into a time of reflection, a time of mystery, a time where we might experience the transformation of your love that you might make us new together. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, this scripture reading this morning has me reflecting a little bit on the time when I became a Christian uh, first right in high school. Because many of you know I did not grow up in the church and I uh, didn't grow up reading the Bible passages that everyone had read. I remember going to camps in high school, and then all of a sudden at these camps, the kids would start breaking out into songs like, Father Abraham had many sons, and I would just sit there and ask myself, what did I get myself into? (laughs) What are they singing? I do not know any of this, but they know all of the lyrics, all of the hand gestures and feet gestures that they're supposed to do with these songs, and I couldn't help but wonder why where they were doing what they're doing. Because, I mean, th- this scripture passage that we have this morning, John 3.16, right? It's the most popular scripture passage in the Christian church, right? For God so loved the world, God gave God's only son, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, you can sum up all of scripture within that one phrase, Right? And the interesting thing is, is that that's the most common scripture that we have, and it's the, uh, the phrase that people quote over and over again when they talk about the heart of the gospel and the heart of the church. And yet, me, growing up in a small town in Minnesota, surrounded by Christians, had no understanding that Christianity was about love. In fact, I thought Christianity was about the rules that you must follow to get in and out of heaven and hell, Right? And then I also thought that Christians were all about arguing with scientists because they believed in uh, evolution and Christians, well, God made the world in seven days. And so we were tied within this sort of uh, dualism and this fight between uh, the Christian circle and then the, you know, non-Christian circle. And, you know, I kept uh, going around. I was in the hockey crowd. And so, you know, I'd find myself doing the things that had the, you know, skeptical eye, right, from the Christian crowd, the things that I was doing wrong. And, And so I just came to the conclusion that Christianity was just a set of rules that made sense of our universe. And that made sense of how things were, uh, come into being, you know, in creation and where we were going when we died. And that was my understanding of Christianity. And it wasn't until I stumbled upon this uh, ministry called Young Life, and some of you know it's a, a parachurch organization, that they started to tell me about John 3.16. They started to tell me that for the first time that the Bible was about God's love. I was 16 years old in a Christian town and had not heard that the primary message of the church was about God's love. But the interesting thing about it is not necessarily that I I didn't hear about this. It's about what I learned after becoming a Christian. Because I opened the Bible unfiltered, right? Because I started, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know any of those Christian songs, you know, who was Jonah and what is this whale and how did that really happen? And, you know, all of the questions that a lot of people ask, like, well, you know, Did this really happen? I mean, think about some of the basic tenets of Christian faith, right? 
we grew up, if you've grown up in the West, it makes total sense to you, right? Jesus was born of a virgin birth. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Simple tenets of our Christian faith. But make complete, they don't make any sense if you didn't grow up with those stories, right? No one is born without conception. <laughs> Did you know that? No one raises from the dead. Did you know that? Did you also know that one plus one plus one equals three? But we believe in this thing called the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and somehow that's not three gods? When you come from the outside and you look in, you have a lot of what I would say are legitimate questions. And so I became a, a Christian um, in the sort of early 2000s time, and one of the things that was going on during that time is something that we're headed into this year, a political election, right? And um, I remember in Bible studies and, and small groups that I was involved in asking a lot of questions, and I'm not trying to get political about what you should or shouldn't believe. I, I just remember reading things like, turn the other cheek. And when I was in high school, President Bush was one of the ones, and one of the hot topic, you know, items that was on the debate was the death penalty. And, and I remember asking to my small group, I said to them, if Jesus says, turn the other cheek, why are all of our Christian friends telling us that we should believe in the death penalty? Right? Again, I'm not trying to make a statement about death penalty for or against, but all I was trying to do was ask what I thought was a, a, a confusing like, conundrum that Christians found themselves in. And they said to me, oh, Brian, you're reading that all wrong, right? No, that is not what it means, and it's simple. Jesus doesn't mean that, right? And they pointed me to other passages in the Bible that talk about retrib uh, retributive justice, right? Where, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, except for that's actually not found in the Bible. Um, but they said it. And so I just took them for what it was, you know, that they would teach me how to read this thing, the Bible, and it wasn't until I went to college and I started to study and started to learn from uh, this professor that called Jesus Crazy Jesus. <laughs> and he called him Crazy Jesus because Jesus says all sorts of things that make no sense. And Jesus says all sorts of things that are just disruptive, almost whatever angle you look at it from. And it challenges you. He speaks in parables that can't be locked down to specific ways of interpretation. And that he was about both justice and about social holiness. And, and you know, all of these confusing conundrums. So he called him crazy Jesus. And I started to realize that the Christians I had grown up with perhaps had a, a cultural lens that they were looking on the Bible from. And, and I bring that up to you today because of this scripture that I'm sure you've heard over and over and over again in a multiplicity of ways. Except for what was interesting in, in doing more studying about this scripture, which I'll be honest, I hadn't done an exegesis on this scripture prior to uh, two weeks ago, because I had to give this sermon last week at Christ Church when I was down there pulpit supplying. But when I was studying for it, that if you read the context of John 3.16, it's not the same way that we often like to interpret it. The context of John 3.16 finds itself located within this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. You see, we already learned, if you backtrack to the end of chapter 2, that the Jewish community is starting to recognize that Jesus is uh, this figure of some significance. 
He was doing miracles and he was doing sorts of things in God's name. And people, it says even there, believed in Jesus' name, right? Because John 3.16 says, if you only believe in Jesus, you shall be saved. So simple. But a a multiplicity of people were believing in Jesus' name. And one of those people was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes in the night, which is interesting. Why didn't Nicodemus come during the day? You might ask yourself. Comes during the night with some skeptical questions of Jesus. And comes up to Jesus as one of the rulers of the Pharisees and says to him, what does it mean to be born again, right? That's what Jesus talks about. What does it mean to follow you? And Jesus says, one must be born again. And, you know, we look at that and we say, yeah, one must be born again, right? We come from the Western society. It's kind of like, you know, immaculate conception, resurrection. It just falls in line with the Christian speak that we have. But being born again, I mean, think about it for a second. It doesn't make any sense. And if people hadn't been talking about being born again outside from, you know, the context that we find ourselves, you would be wondering the same sort of questions that Nicodemus had. Like, wait, okay. I'm just, Jesus, I'm just trying to figure out how I follow you, and then now you're saying I need to go back into my mother's womb and then be born again? I don't understand what you're talking to me. You're being a little crazy, Jesus, right? You don't make sense right now. And then Jesus kind of goes on, right? Kind of continues down this avenue of trying to explain to Nicodemus something that is somewhat unexplainable had this experience not too long ago, and I'm just going to give you guys just a public uh, announcement or, you know, disclosure that coming up in the next month, you're going to be hearing more basketball hints coming in because it's getting into that season, and um, and as I said, whenever Duke beats UNC, I have to mention it in the sermon, so that happened yesterday, but anyway... I remember when I was in Chapel Hill, um, some of you know that Michael Jordan um, actually went to college in Chapel Hill and, and was there for a year. And so when he you know, became super famous and amazing athlete, he started his line, Air Jordans, right? And so it's a, it's a line of uh, Nike called Air Jordan. And University of Chapel Hill is like the staple Air Jordan. So everything that the athlete, well, the basketball players, is all Air Jordan, not Nike. It's Air Jordan. And I was in Chapel Hill when Michael Jordan was releasing, for the first time, the football line. Okay? And so he sat sat there in the Dean Dome, which is where the basketball court, and he, you know, got into the center of the Dean Dome, and he uh, proclaims this new line of football gear that they're releasing. And then he says, as his like mic drop statement, the ceiling's the roof. And everyone cheered because, you know, they just love Michael Jordan because they're UNC fans. And I, I thought to myself, what in the world is Michael Jordan talking about in this moment? <laughs> like, the ceiling's the roof. Yes, I know. I can look up and I can see the ceiling. And as I went to ask all of my, you know, indoctrinated UNC fans, right, that what does this phrase mean? It took a few days for even the diehard UNC fans to figure what the heck Jordan was talking about, even though they already had the t-shirts made, the ceilings, the roof, right? Turns out that Michael Jordan was talking about, and I forget the name of the stadium, but Michael Jordan was talking about the stadium where the football team played. Not where he was standing, which was the Dean Dome, and the stadium where the football team played is not a stadium with a roof. 
And so he was trying to say to everyone, the ceiling's the roof, which is to say there is no ceiling. That you can reach to whatever limits because there's nothing to stop you. There is no roof. There is no roof. And I use that analogy because I believe that Jesus, with this weird phrase that didn't make any sense to Nicodemus, was trying to call Nicodemus out from underneath the roof. See, because when you have a roof, you know what God looks like, because God's mural's painted up there. You know what God looks like, what God acts like, and you know how God's going to vote, and you know whether or not to believe in the death penalty or whatever it is. You just know that God when there's a roof. And the Pharisees had a roof. They knew God, and they knew what God was going to do in different contexts, and they knew how God was going to answer according to the scriptures that they had known, and they knew God. And so when Jesus said to them, you must be born of the Spirit. He must said to them that the Spirit is unpredictable and wildly. Jesus was calling Nicodemus out into the wilderness. A wilderness where God is, in fact, God. God cannot be contained in the wilderness. There is no roof where you can understand and know everything there is to know about God. Because when you look, you see the stars and the galaxies and the mystery of the cosmos. And that you realize in that moment that you are you and God is God. So, for that reason, God so loved the world that God sent God's only son how many of you have heard that scripture in that context before? That that simple scripture that's meant to be exactly what the gospel is, right? Believe in Jesus and you do that by X, Y, and Z. Go to church, read your Bible, proclaim the sinner's prayer, or whatever context that you've been in, was really a way in which Jesus is inviting all of us out from underneath the roof to experience the God of mystery, the God of the wilderness. And friends, we need that God this year. Did you know that? We need that God this year because we have lots of ways that people are going to tell us that's what God looks like and that's how God's going to act. We're going to come up with that as a denomination in May as we grapple with what to do amidst a, a dividing denomination. And, and both sides of that are going to say, that's what God looks like. And we're going to then follow that immediately by eight months of nonstop television ads between Trump and whoever else Trump ends up running against. And each side of that political divide are going to tell us that's what that God looks like. And all the while, Jesus, with this most important scripture that's proclaimed everywhere, is inviting us out from underneath the roof where we know God and we can control God and we can tell other people what that God wants you to do. 
But God is a God of the wilderness. God is a God that cannot be controlled. God is a God of mystery that comes to us. Not the other way around, us going to God. So during this Lent, I want to invite us to think, to pray, to open ourselves up to a God who is a mystery. We're at Tuesdays at 10, and so there's a Bible study that we have at 10 o'clock on Tuesday mornings, and we were talking about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene's Creed and the Council of Chalcedon Statement of Faith. Really exciting things. You should come. It's awesome. But ultimately, it's really fascinating. I could read you the Council of Chalcedon, which goes to depict how Jesus is both human and divine in the same person. And it's a long paragraph with super fancy and very, very, very intentional words. And ultimately, the words that are there are to point us to the reality that Jesus is a mystery. The same with our language of the Trinity. You sit in any theology school throughout the country, well, the ones that I would recommend, (laughs) and you talk about what's a good analogy to explain how one plus one plus one equals one. And there is no analogy that can explain the mystery of the divine. There's no way for us to wrap our minds fully around God, and how good is that? Because that means we always have the ability to grow, to move beyond ourselves, to go out into the wilderness and to look up into the sky and the God who made all of this in some mysterious way loves us and is coming to us if we but open ourselves to that mystery. If we follow Michael Jordan's weird advice, The ceiling is the roof. And we move out into the wilderness where there is no roof. And we open ourselves to God and God's love. And to that oh-so-familiar scripture, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son to us. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks that who you are, how you work in the world, and what you call us to is not always known. That in fact, Oftentimes, it's a mystery that we open ourselves to hear, 